This is the voting machine hacking village. We have election machines, we have voter registration systems. People are free to hack. They've always been free to hack. That's the point. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI 92.9 FM, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN 94.1 FM, Palinville, New York's 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in Washington, D.C. on 105.5, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day of the week on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. For another thrilling action-packed adventure, I hope not too thrilling. Uh, we've had enough thrills over the past week or two for a lifetime, wouldn't you say, Desi Doyen? <laughs> yeah, let's let, let's kind of dial it back a yeah, little bit on the news, back. guys. Yes, please. Uh, I'm afraid that's not going to happen, at least uh, if uh, the uh, breaking news before airtime is any indication. Before we get to that, however, coming up... Uh, After years of failed attempts by election officials and the private voting machine industry at security by obscurity, by fruitlessly trying to keep voting machines and computer tabulators and electronic poll books out of the hands of the public in, in some frankly ridiculous attempt to claim that they were safe to use for American democracy. As long as you don't see them, you don't know, right? Well, that all may have gone out the window over the weekend in Las Vegas at DEFCON's Voter Village, where a, uh, a room full of voting machines were set up at the 25th Annual Hackers Convention, uh, in which 30 voting systems were made available for hackers to try their luck. And, and, uh, and reports out of the convention are that every single one of those systems was found vulnerable in just a few short hours over this weekend convention. I will be joined momentarily by a longtime computer scientist from one of the uh, U.S. national laboratories who has served himself as an advisor to the uh, to state election officials out here in California for more than a decade. Uh, and a man who has long been warning about the vulnerabilities of these very systems. He was also a presenter over the weekend at DEFCON, so we will hopefully get the full skinny from Dr. David Jefferson shortly on the entire remarkable weekend that hopefully 
may serve as a turning point. We will see in the uh, in the public discussion of, frankly, what we have been warning so many people about on this show, on the Bradcast, and, of course, at bradblog.com for going on about 15 years now, Des. Yeah, I would say that's about right. <laughs> and it has been a tough fight, uh, frankly, to help the public understand the threat to democracy from these systems. Uh, and so hopefully uh, maybe some of that will get a little bit easier now. We'll see if uh, hopefully uh, what happened in Vegas over the weekend does not stay in <laughs> Vegas. That's One what hopes. I'm hoping. We will yeah. talk to Dr. Jefferson about that and much more very shortly. Well, uh, remember be, uh, last week after the new White House communications director, Anthony Scaramucci. Scaramouche, Scaramouche. That's right. <laughs> After his uh, profanity-laced tirade uh, to a New Yorker reporter uh, targeting then-Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, after that I noted that, ironically, instead of firing Scaramucci for that, Trump fired Priebus instead. Well, uh, apparently that didn't last long. The New York Times uh, was the first to break this this afternoon. The, uh, the mooch is out. After just 10 days in the role and uh, and before he actually began as White House communications director, the Times reports that uh, President Trump on Monday removed Anthony Scaramucci from his position as communications director. Anthony Scaramucci will be leaving his role as White House communications director, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said. She's the White House press secretary, at least for now. She could go any minute by the time this show is over. Who knows? <laughs> Things move quickly around here. Scaramucci felt it, was, felt it was best to give Chief of Staff John Kelly a clean slate and the ability to build his own team. We wish him all the best, said Huckabee Sanders. No, Scaramucci didn't feel that. He was fired. His abrupt removal came just 10 days after the wealthy New York financier was brought on to the West Wing staff, which convulsed an already chaotic White House, says the New York Times, and led to the departures of Sean Spicer, the form, former press secretary, Reince Priebus, the president's first chief of staff, the shortest-serving chief of staff, by the way, in uh, White, House, White House history. So, see? So far. Priebus accomplished something. <laughs> In a Twitter message just before 5.30 a.m. on Monday morning, hours before the announcement that the mooch had been uh, canned, Trump insisted that there has been, quote, no White House chaos. What White House chaos? What's he talking? There, it's a no finely chaos. tuned machine. That's remember? what he said, right? This administration is running like a fine tuned machine. Yes, yes, it certainly is. Uh, the uh, Scaramucci, of course, had boasted about reporting directly to the president, not to the chief of staff. But the decision to remove him, the Times reports, came from the White House chief of staff, the new one who was just appointed this weekend or Friday to replace uh, Reince Priebus. Uh, he was not supposed to start until August 15th. Scaramucci wasn't. Oh, well. So he was fired even before he began. <laughs> oh, that, that, too, is a record. People close to the, to the decision say Trump had quickly soured on the wise-cracking Long Island bread former hedge fund manager from Goldman Sachs, uh, and so had his family. Now, this is interesting. Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, and Jared Kushner, her husband, had pushed the president to hire Scaramucci in the first place. 
as a way to uh, help force out Mr. Priebus, the uh, former National Committee chair and his allies in the West Wing. Can I just say that, you know, Jared was also said to have been the one to encourage Trump to fire director James Comey. Maybe he ought to stop listening to Jared Kushner. Maybe Jared Kushner is the one who needs to be fired at this point. Since he keeps uh, advising Trump to do what apparently are the stupidest things. Just saying. Uh, in that Scaramucci was successful in uh, getting Priebus moved out. Uh, Spicer, the uh, close ally of Priebus, had resigned just hours after the news about Scaramucci's hiring was made public because he was against it, thought it was a bad idea. Seems like he was right. And then, of course, Priebus, who had been called by Scaramucci in, in paper to a, uh, to a reporter, called a paranoid schizophrenic a paranoiac. And that, by the way, is about the nicest thing that we can say from that interview over your public airwaves about what Scaramucci had to say about him. Um, Trump was initially re reported to have been pleased by Scaramucci's harsh remarks about uh, Priebus and about Steve Bannon, who still apparently has a job at the White House, uh, the chief strategist there. But over the weekend, after speaking with his family and Mr. Kelly, General Kelly, the president began to see the brash actions of his subordinate as a political liability and potential embarrassment. Potential Embarrassment? Apparently, he will not be doing the fandango. <laughs> so uh, that happened today <laughs> already. Uh, and all right, just to clean up a bit, I know we got to get to David here momentarily, but just to clean up a, a little bit of mop up here from the sordid and unfinished business from last week before starting another undoubtedly sordid week uh, today. This week, uh, Mulvaney, uh, Mick Mulvaney, the, the said uh, he's the uh, White House budget director. He said the Senate should not vote on anything else, not anything else until it has voted again on repealing Obamacare. There's some more good ad advice from a White House advisor there, it sounds like. Mulvaney said that, yes, it's official White House policy that the Senate shouldn't hold a vote on another issue, not even an imminent crisis like raising the debt ceiling, until the Senate votes again on health care. Mulvaney said on uh, CNN's State of the Union over the weekend, in the White House's view, they can't move on in the Senate. You can't promise folks you're going to do something for seven years and then not do it. The House, which has passed an Obamacare repeal measure, is on its summer break now until Labor Day. But the Senate plans to work at least another two weeks. And already they're not listening to Mulvaney. Uh, or the White House in the U.S. Senate. They plan to vote on a federal judge nominee today, I believe. Um, in a string of recent tweets, Trump has urged Republican senators to not give up on repealing Obamacare and to continue to work on the issue unless the Republican senators are total quitters, he said. Their rhetoric is so lame. Uh, sure, that'll, yeah, right? That'll make them work. That'll yeah, convince sure. them. Why not, why not call them fat and stupid and ugly when you're at it? That, that'll certainly convince them to do it. Give, give him time. He'll call him fat and stupid. <laughs> He'll come and around. That'll, yeah. Uh, Trump also tweeted about ending, quote, bailouts for insurance companies and lawmakers' health care. 
Mulvaney said the special exemption, um, talking about this uh, lawmakers' uh, health, these so-called bailouts, uh, the special exemption dealt with the employer contribution, how much your employer, when you're a member of Congress, that's the federal government, can contribute to your health care coverage. And that's the rule that the president was talking about in his tweet yesterday regarding those bailouts. Now, when the Affordable Care Act was passed back in 2009 and 2010, one of the demands that Republicans had made was for members of Congress and their staff to use the Obamacare exchanges for for purchasing their own insurance. They thought that that would be a poison pill, that Democrats would never go for that. It would somehow kill the, the legislation. But instead, Democrats adopted that. They said, OK, sure, sounds fine. Which, by the way, also underscores this myth uh, that Republicans still try to spread that Obamacare was written without input from Republicans. There's just one example of the more than 100 amendments that Republicans put forward that Democrats accepted in the Affordable Care Act. In any event, uh, payment to Congress members for their insurance is is just like the cost sharing that many employers do with their employees in helping them to afford health care. It's not a bailout as Trump and Mulvaney are trying to describe it. it it's also not a bailout to pay the, the cost-sharing reductions to these uh, private insurance companies to help lower the cost of premiums and deductibles for, uh, for low-income Americans. That's the entire premise of the Affordable Care Act, like it or not. And, like it or not, it has helped over 20 million uh, Americans get access to, uh, to health insurance. Nonetheless, Trump continues to suggest that he might end those payments, those cost-sharing payments, as punishment for not having this passed uh, by the Senate, punishment to, to somebody for not repealing Obamacare. The punishment, of course, the victims here would be the low-income Americans who couldn't afford health care without those uh, subsidies. And, and many of those victims, by the way, are uh, people who had voted for Donald Trump last year. In the meantime, a majority of Americans oppose the GOP efforts to gut Obamacare at this point. Uh, Mulvaney and Trump notwithstanding, they want Congress to move on to other issues, according to yet another new poll out over the weekend. A majority of Americans are ready to move on from health care reform at this point after I know I am Jesus uh, after the U.S. Senate's effort to dismantle Obamacare failed on Friday. That's according to a new exclusive Reuters Ipsos opinion poll released on Saturday. Nearly two-thirds of the country wants to either keep or modify the Affordable Care Act, popularly known as Obamacare, and a majority of Americans want Congress to turn its attention to other priorities, the survey found. This was taken uh, over the weekend, a poll of more than 1,100 Americans conducted after the Republican-led effort collapsed in the U.S. Senate. 64% said they wanted to keep Obamacare entirely, either as is or fixing problem areas. That's up from 54% in January. So the more they debate about this, the more popular it gets, apparently, uh, as more and more evidence shows us. Among Republicans, three-fourths said they'd like their party leaders to try to repeal and replace Obamacare at some point, though most listed other issues that they would give a higher priority to right now. So um, one person who is not moving on, at least sort of, 
uh, is independent Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders appearing with Jake Tapper on CNN's State of the Union on Sunday. Sanders said that he will absolutely introduce legislation on single-payer health care now that the Senate GOP's bill to repeal Obamacare has finally failed again. We're going to introduce a single-payer uh, health care plan literally as soon as we're through with the Republican health care debate. It seems like we're through, um, and the Obamacare repeal effort has collapsed. Um, are you going to introduce single-payer? Absolutely. Of course we are. We're just, you know, we're tweaking the final uh, points of the bill, uh, and we're figuring out how we can mount a national campaign to bring people together. Here's where we are, Jake, and it's important for Americans to understand this. We are the only major country on earth, the only one, not to guarantee health care to all people. The result is 28 million people who are uninsured, millions of people who are paying deductibles and co-payments that are far too high. And if the Republicans had gotten their way, there would have been another 30 or 32 million people thrown off of health insurance. That is crazy. What we should do is move in the direction of every other major country, guarantee health care to all people as a right, not a privilege. There's Bernie Sanders singing that same song over the weekend, uh, even after the fights in the U.S. Senate about repealing and replacing Obamacare. I uh, had another story. I'm not going to have time for it uh, that I wanted to do here, though. Uh, but very quickly, out here in California, the state Senate had passed a, uh, uh, a resolution for single payer health care in the House or the Assembly. However, that was killed by the Democratic State Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon. And there is now a move to recall Anthony Rendon. This is a, a battle between Democrats here, uh, some of whom continue to push for single payer. Others who say, no, that's not feasible. But uh, I will just say uh, democracy is so much more interesting when debating actual issues. This debate, whether you know how to do single payer, if to do it rather than the made-up nonsense that we've had to rebut here for so many months, so many years uh, when it comes to the Republicans' nonsense about Obamacare. So I'm happy to see the fight for now moving to what we'll call the left, at least out here in California, after most Republicans have been largely voted out of the state, uh, <laughs> out of the state assembly in any event uh, on that issue. It's mostly controlled by Democrats at this point, and so now it's their own infighting. I would say good, because that's a legitimate debate. Yeah, we're having an actual policy debate, finally. Speaking of actual policy debates, finally, finally, uh, people are noticing that, yes, our entire election system across all 50 states here in the United States are vulnerable to hackers and manipulation, and something needs to be done about it. Well, something was done about it of a sort over the weekend in Las Vegas. We'll come back with that story right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. We rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Viva Las Vegas! Yep. Viva Las Vegas! 
Welcome back. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, within just a couple of hours on Friday, word began leaking out of the Voting Machine Village set up at the 25th Annual Hackers Convention in Las Vegas, known as DEFCON on Friday. 90 minutes after doors opened, the organizers tweeted, complete remote control on the operating system level of the WinVote voting terminal, including election data. Shortly thereafter, they tweeted, on the electronic pollbook front, internal data structure already discovered and reverse engineered within an hour at the Voting Village. The Voting Village, uh, they noted, had a bunch of machines, a bunch of machine makes and models to try your hand at, including the Sequoia ABC Edge, ESNSI Votronic, Diebold TSX, WinVote, and Diebold Express Poll 4000. Voting systems, we've all written about all of them uh, over the years at bradblog.com and their vulnerabilities in great detail. More importantly, they noted there's a chance to make a little history here. The integrity of voting systems is a live issue in the world's news, and there are a lot of eyes on our little experiment, they wrote. If your idea of fun includes a little paradigm shifting, the Voting Village is open to all DEFCON, their website read on Friday night. Well, documentary filmmaker and journalist Lulu Friesdat, a guest on this show several times in uh, in recent months, posted at Alternate, Who says America's electronic voting machinery cannot be hacked? Not me. One of the world's largest and best-known hacker conventions, DEF CON, debuted an interactive voting machine hacker village this year at its annual gathering in Las Vegas. In some cases, she notes, within minutes, and in other cases, within a few hours of the village doors opening, hackers in attendance said they had successfully breached some systems. The security investigators claimed to have found major vulnerabilities or claimed to have breached every voting machine and system present by the time they were done. Members of the DEF CON hacking community said they took complete control of an e-poll book, a type of election equipment in use in dozens of states where voters arrive at precincts, sign in, and receive their ballots. Other targets, hackers claim, uh, had major security flaws, including the Sequoia AVC Edge, that's a touchscreen system, currently in use in 13 states, and the AccuVote TSX, another touchscreen system in use in 19 states, including used recently in June in the uh, congressional uh, in the 6th congressional district special US house election in Georgia that we've been talking about quite a bit in recent weeks the organizers of the voting village emphasized that in the past corporations had resisted acknowledging the security flaws surrounding computer voting systems after laws were passed requiring businesses to acknowledge security breaches, there has been a significant change in corporate security culture, if not in the voting industry. DEFCON participants expressed the conviction that a similar trajectory is necessary for U.S. elections and for the private voting machine vendors whose hardware and software they use. Our friend Harry Hursty, the great computer security expert from Finland, responsible for some of the earliest discoveries of the shameful security vulnerabilities in the nation's voting machines. If you saw HBO's Emmy-nominated 2006 documentary Hacking Democracy, you saw his landmark hack demonstrating how he was able to completely flip the results of a paper ballot election. 
on the optical scan tabulators with very little possibility of detection unless someone, anyone, bothered to actually hand count those paper ballots after the election. Hari kicked off the uh, what seemed to have been a wildly successful uh, set of festivities at DEFCON's voting village. Here he is opening up the small room with some 30 voting systems and a number of folks who uh, attended there who were quickly able to access those systems in various ways. This is audio obtained by Lulu Friesdat. This is the voting machine hacking village. We have uh, election machines, we have voter registration systems. People are free to hack, they are free to open the these machines. We can uh, experiment and we can do tests which are uh, risky. I called Jeff Moss, the founder of DEF CON, and said, hey, you know what might be fun this year? We should hack voting machines. He called me back and said, all right, let's do it. So these guys with this electronic poll book are, have already gotten access to the database. We can add fake voters subtract voters from the voter record, vote multiple times. They own the database. The poll book attack is actually one of the things that I personally am most concerned about. One of the biggest threats to, to voting is to just make it so that there's chaos in the precinct on election day. These guys could now do that if they, if they wanted to. The actual vote names are in plain text in there. It is very, very accessible. You can get right in, write whatever data. If you have access to this card, mind you, it's a card that's inside the machine, but if you can get access to that card, you can make it say whatever you want. Most shocking of all, everything we discovered is basically still out there alive and vulnerable. Everything we discovered is basically still out there, alive and vulnerable, said uh, Hursty there at the end. As reported by Politico, he went on to point out that election machines used in the U.S. really do not have security standards. He said the voluntary voting system standard addresses air humidity and shock resistance, but not security. This means that the old systems, which were designed with no security consciousness, are not being replaced with responsibly designed successors said Hursty, a Finnish computer programmer who has worked on election-related issues in Finland, the UK, Estonia, Argentina, and the US. Also, he added, vendors are frequently blatantly misrepresenting the specifications and the properties of the equipment that they sell to jurisdictions. And boy, howdy, is he right. That is an understatement, as we have reported here and at bradblog.com for going on some 15 years now. But with all of the attention the hacking of voting systems received over the weekend at DEF CON, are we now, finally, maybe, potentially, at a turning point in this fight? Uh, here to, the, to discuss that is Dr. David, David Jefferson. After years of working as a computer scientist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, Dr. Jefferson is now enjoying sort of semi-retirement from the lab, though he still works there from time to time when he isn't donning a Hawaiian shirt and presenting at DEF CON in Vegas, as he did over the weekend. David's an internationally recognized expert on voting systems and election technology, He's been a pioneer in the field for some 20 years. He's served as an advisor to five successive secretaries of state out here in California, both Democratic and Republican parties, I should add, um, when it comes to technology-related issues, specifically regarding voting systems. He's also a longtime member of the board of directors at California Voter Foundation and Verified Voting, two nonprofit uh, election watchdogs. 
His CV is too long to detail here, but I will note that in 2007, under Secretary of State Deborah Bowen in California, he worked closely with her landmark top-to-bottom review of all voting systems in use at the time in California, a study which found that every single one of those systems was hackable down to the tabulator level, often in just minutes' time. He's also been an outspoken opponent against the madness of Internet voting, and a proponent in favor of post-election partial audits, perhaps the one area where my friend David and I tend to disagree at least a bit. David Jefferson, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you very much, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Uh, so, uh, David, wow, this voting village at DEFCON uh, seemed to be the biggest event uh, that, that that convention has ever held, at least according to the photos and the videos and the story that I read. Folks uh, seem to be just swarming this thing with interest. It was a wild time, I have to tell you. So um, this uh, uh, hacking village Mm -hmm. uh, for voting machines was set up by our friends, as you know, uh, Harry Hursty and Matt Blaze. Mm -hmm. And really in just six weeks it came together because the idea just didn't even even come up until six weeks ago. And Mm. in that short of time, they managed to, to... uh, gather all these voting machines, examples of voting machines, and and put the publicity together. And it was uh, certainly a wild experience. That room was just crowded from morning to night with people. And and the amazing thing is that all of those successful hacks that you mm-hmm. described in the intro there, these were by people who had almost most of them had never seen a voting machine before, and certainly not the system sitting in front of them. And they had not met each other before, and they didn't come with a with a full set of tools that were, you know, mm-hmm. tailored towards uh, the attacking these machines. They just started with a, you know, a piece of hardware in front of them and their own laptops and ingenuity and self-organized into teams that attacked the various different systems. And it was amazing how quickly they did it. And also, to me, it was amazing how young many of them were. Mm-hmm. Some of them were. Uh, a number of them were under 20 so it was just a really an exciting time it's it's amazing and not just that they did this in uh, essentially i guess two days over the weekend but uh since you note uh, that this was uh, this idea was hatched just six weeks ago this means that within six weeks the organizers here were able to go out and find these machines which used to be very very difficult to come by We'll talk about that in a minute, but they were able to find within just six weeks 30 different machines that they could uh, bring in and open up to these folks. I want to talk a little bit more about what they discovered along the way, but you also, David, gave a presentation. I saw you on on Twitter in your very un-Livermore Laboratory-like <laughs> Hawaiian shirt. Uh, what were you presenting on, and, and how was that received at the uh, at the convention? So, so with the Hawaiian shirt, I was overdressed because <laughs> yes. uh, everybody else was just in a T-shirt. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the um, so what my presentation was to uh, d- describe to the audience that the that elections are not conducted just by the terminal voting machines that you meet at the precinct, mm-hmm. but it was to talk about the entire ecosystem of technology around it, the flows of software, of um, election description information mm-hmm. of voter registration information and flows of votes. So I was just describing to them the the global organization of an election system of which the voting machines in the in the uh uh hackers uh village were, you know, sort of 
isolated parts. Yeah, which is a great point because a lot of people think of, uh, well, they, they see those touchscreen machines. I believe there's a, a consciousness about them in the country now that people understand that those machines may not be so good that they can uh, flip results without detection. But when people have paper ballots, they tend to think, well, we've got paper ballots hand marked, so everything is fine. They don't understand that that ties into these computer tabulators, these uh, optical scanners, which are vulnerable. And of course, now these electronic poll book systems that uh, it was a little hard to hear in that audio, but you had one uh, you know, voter talking about the fact that they could change names, change parties, remove voters, add voters to those e-poll books. Right. Kind of stunning. Um, David, it seems many of the machines used there were, were older ones, uh, still in use, but mostly the older touchscreen systems, etc. Were there uh, optical scan paper ballot systems there to, uh, to hack? No, I didn't actually see any of the optical scan paper ballot systems. Mm-hmm. They were mostly uh, electronic voting terminals and poll books, although there was a, uh, a canvas system and a voter registration system there as well. Um, because this thing was put together in six weeks, they had to um, they, they had to find whatever systems they could get people to uh, to donate to them. Um, but for the first time, it, it, I think in recorded history, we actually got some cooperation from some election officials, and there were a lot of of um, re- really prominent uh, prominent people there. There were a couple of congressmen, for example. There were a couple of vendor representatives that I saw there who were surprisingly, I would say, um, they were listening. Mm. And uh, there were, of course, lots of important uh, hackers there, Harry Hursty, of course, Mm -hmm. but also this guy named Longo Lamb, whom you may recall uh, was the the guy who discovered the uh, amazing vulnerabilities in the statewide um, voter system in Georgia that is hosted at Kennesaw State. Yep. Um, he was there, and I was I was privileged to meet him. It was just a, a terrific uh, experience. Y- you'll recall, I know, David, the uh, the sort of cloak and dagger days uh, when we had to obtain these machines yeah. uh, from sources to get them to folks at uh, at Princeton uh, back then. Yep. Uh, the yep. the, the machines to do any sort of independent public study. So this was, to me, uh, for those of us uh, following this for all of these years, uh, a a stunning change from the dark days of, you know, 2004, 2005. Is there any danger in exercises like this as, you know, election officials and voting machine companies have spent years keeping these systems or at least trying to out of view from independent analysts, um, you know, and as I've demonstrated for years, as you have, that every time these systems get into any kind of public hands or independent uh, investigators, they find flaws in them. So officials have been trying to keep sources from, you know, people from being able to purchase these at all uh, to get their hands on them. And yet they could be purchased from uh, from eBay now or on government uh, surplus sites. So is there a concern that you have? Do you share that concern that election officials have that once people see these machines, they'll it'll be easier to hack our elections? Well, I frankly I'm much more concerned about the the secrecy surrounding them and the proprietary nature of them than I am about any possible dangers uh, that are that are revealed in in exercises like this. 
uh, as you as you know, the voting systems and their source code um, are protected, shall we say, by a web of legal and contractual and um, and NDA uh, mm-hmm. restrictions, so that basically people who have them are not allowed to allow others to examine them, and the source code is kept tightly controlled, so that even election officials can't see the source code generally. Um, so. So this is a and and then the whole thing was wrapped in the uh, in the DMCA, which until recently did not have a, a uh, an exception for uh, researchers such as ourselves who have been trying to understand the vulnerabilities of voting systems. But I am seeing a kind of sea change here. Um, for the first time, I am sensing that uh, election officials and the Department of Homeland Security. And the FBI and the intelligence community and Congress and uh, and the press are suddenly, after the 2016 election experience, receptive to our message that these systems are extremely vulnerable and to the extent that it's a serious national security issue. I mean, as you know, mm-hmm. in a in a democracy. The legitimacy of government depends upon free and fair and and, and uh, uh, secure elections, and people are beginning to realize that we haven't been we haven't had those for a long time. And the fact that the Russians um, are are understood to have interfered technically with our elections in several different ways in the last election really is suddenly making everyone aware um, that. The things that we've been saying all along are are actually true, and so uh, I'm encouraged for the first time in a very long time that we have a long way to go. That we do have a long way to go. The uh, the the sense, just to sort of close this one loop that I get, uh, by the way, from officials uh, not wanting the public to get a look at these machines was not because someone might learn how to manipulate them, but because the public would quickly understand just how awful and vulnerable all of these systems were uh am i on the am i on the right track with that particular thinking as you say well and i i think the the reason that they're afraid about the public understanding of the vulnerabilities is that the election officials are afraid that the blowback would come towards them now local election officials generally don't have a lot of choices as to what systems they buy they have to buy the systems that their state has certified Mm -hmm. but nonetheless the public tends to hold them hold them accountable for anything that goes wrong with an election and tends to hold them accountable for the voting systems that they field so i think that i think at least for local election officials it's a matter of fear um, that they will that they will get uh, smeared with blame that is that that is in some sense unfair to them for state officials it's a little harder to justify because they do make the decisions as to what systems can be used and the regulations for how they should be used and so on. And um, I think this is, it's been a, there's plenty of scandal to go around about how the uh, public has been, or I I would say how election officials have have fooled themselves usually Mm. uh, into believing the uh, claims of their vendors that the systems are, secure from all kinds of attack. And as you pointed out in the intro, it's just never been true. I would point out also, uh, David, the... um, the 
You, since you had mentioned uh, the, the growing concern at the federal level from uh, members of Congress, the intelligence community and so forth, uh, citing concerns, allegations about Russia, uh, I would argue they are still um, sort of fooling themselves. And uh, the evidence that I would present, we've talked about it a lot on this show, is that, you know, we've heard over and over again, oh, uh, Russia did this or that. We don't have the evidence for it, but they did this. Trust us. Believe us. But what they didn't do was change the results of the election. And then weeks went by and we found out that those federal officials who have been telling us, oh, no, you know, vote totals were never changed. We then find out, as I had pointed out right away, frankly, that they never looked at the actual voting machines or the voting tabulators. They never did investigations of those. And, of course, we know uh, that they never counted the paper ballots after the election. In fact, they went to court to try to stop Jill Stein from uh, from being able to count paper ballots by hand in, in Michigan and Wisconsin and where paper ballots exist in Pennsylvania. Right. Um, I, 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 I hope we're changing in the direction you suggest, David Jefferson, but I'm worried that there's still a lot of denial out there and misinformation out there, particularly at the federal level. Well, there's, there certainly is a lot of, of, of misinformation and denial out there as well. Um, you mentioned the recount effort in, in Wisconsin, and of course, um, Wisconsin has since changed its recount law to make recounts harder to to happen rather than easier. Yep. So Wisconsin, uh, the Wisconsin legislature was not pleased with the, with that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, and I'm sorry, I, I forgot the uh, tenor of your question well, now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that, you know, we hear a lot of concerns about, you know, foreign hackers, uh, Russian hackers, etc. I don't think that they're taking the uh, situation seriously, whether it's foreign hackers, whether it's, uh, you know, inside hackers, uh, you yep. know, election officials uh, or hackers, just, you know, folks who might have been at DEF CON, the threat to elections that exists and... The claims about the previous election, I don't think it's hard to so take all of that because no, they I, didn't I, count I the remember, ballots. Yeah, I remember what you were saying. It, yeah. So it is certainly the case that any time uh, uh, national or state officials make a statement to the effect of, um, well, the Russians did not change the, uh, the actual uh, count of mm-hmm. votes in this election, um, they cannot know that. They simply can't know because right. you're right. Um, certainly in those states where there are no paper ballots, such as in Georgia, for example, um, it's impossible for them to know. And even in states where there are, if they don't go back and uh, either recount the paper ballots or at least recount a a sample of a random sample of them, no, they can't know either. So what happens is that officials um, say to themselves, well, there is no evidence that the Russians have hacked us. And instead of saying that, they say, the Russians didn't hack us, right. it's ju- and they just transform the. We have no evidence that they did into the positive assertion that they didn't, and that's just absolutely false. They don't know, and they also said. they also don't know. Uh, never mind Russia. They don't know if right. if China hacked us, if Iran, right. if France, Great Britain, if a guy living in Toledo. You're uh, absolutely right. If the election officials uh, manipulated the results themselves from the inside or simply made, uh, you know, mistakes in the programming, as right. we have seen over the years. Right. So so the, the hacking methods that um, the Russians might have used are the same methods that anyone on Earth could use. Insiders, uh, um, criminal syndicates, 
um, nation states other than Russia as mm-hmm. well, or our own political partisans. Um, you really, uh, uh, the fear, of course, is that is that these hacking attempts will be totally undetectable. But even if they are detectable, um, it's difficult often to determine who did it, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was an insider or a or a, uh, a, a domestic partisan or some foreign organization. Um, uh, you're certainly you're certainly right about that. Would it so take the thing that we have to do? Yeah. Um, and I and I know you realize this is that we have to consider first of all we have to make sure that all of the states um, uh, ha- have paper ballots. We need paper ballots. We have to get rid of the concept of a, a uh, an electronic ballot, an electronic only ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to we have to have this bedrock of paper ballots. And the reason that paper is so important is the contents of paper cannot be changed by software. So the, the, if the paper ballots themselves are taken care of, then you always have a way of going back to the paper ballots to determine whether the preliminary counts that, that were published based on, on uh, computerized counting of the ballots mm-hmm. and, and software aggregation of them, you always have a way of checking whether those are correct. And you can check it through a full-hand original count or a full-hand recount or through a random sample, what we call a risk-limiting audit. Um, but you do have to go back to the paper. We, should, we, we cannot be in a situation where the country, um, where the outcomes of our elections are, uh, force us to trust software. Yeah. Um, software is... Software is called soft for a reason. It's because it's easily malleable. It's because it's a it's a soft target right. for attackers, and we just we can't put all of our uh, all of our uh, trust in in software. We need to be able to validate the results of software by being able to go back to voter marked paper ballots. And uh, yeah, that well, and I would say hand marked uh, paper ballots, not voter marked, because a lot of people say that, uh, well, that we can have a computer market. I, I find problems with that as well. But when you talk about the paper ballots, always being able to go back to that, David, we don't go back to that. We had that, you know, certainly we right. had a reason to do so in this last election just to make sure the results were right. It was a very close election, obviously surprise results. And even right. in the closest elections and the most surprising results, it seems like we don't go back after Election Day to count those ballots by hand. That's why I, I've been calling uh, for, for a long time for, you know, getting it right on election night with hand-counted paper ballots. Let me take a break here. I'm running a little bit late, but I want to come back and ask you about that, David Jefferson, about hand-counted paper ballots and a few more uh, details from DEFCON's Voter Village over the weekend. So uh, sit tight, David Jefferson. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. 
We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. They said vote in the election, it's what good people do. We've got this new machine, amazing but it's true. Just touch the screen a few times, it computes your vote for you. And you don't even need any paper. Yeah, that's what they told us. They swore it could Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. They also told us that, hey, as long as we have a paper ballot, a hand-marked paper ballot, it will be fine. We'll be able to go back. If there's any questions after the election about the results, we can always go back and count that uh, that paper by hand. So it's okay to take that paper ballot and apparently run it through an optical scan computer, which often gets it right or wrong. No way of knowing unless we actually go back and hand count the election. And that's what we saw uh, last November, a question, uh, an election that uh, was certainly a close election with surprising results. And yet it was damn near impossible to go back and count the paper ballots to make sure the results were reported accurately. I'm speaking with David Jefferson of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories and chairman of the board at VerifiedVoting.org, a longtime uh, analyst of computer voting systems, particularly out here in California, but all over the world. Uh, so, David, before the break, I was, uh, you know, talking about the fact that it's one thing to have paper ballots; it's another thing to actually have them counted. And if we don't do it on election night, that seems very difficult, uh, even in the closest and most important races. Is it enough to uh, to wait and maybe have a post-election audit, maybe have a, a post-election recount when even those recounts now are counted by optical scanners? That, that, well, I, yeah, certainly. So this is the you, you're drilling in on the only point, I think, where you and I generally disagree. Mm-hmm. I, I personally don't think that uh, a full hand count paper uh, of paper ballots on election night is terribly feasible. It, it, usually, if we do a full ha- uh, hand count in a recount situation of a single race, it takes days or a week, depending upon the size of the jurisdiction. Or if it's a whole state, it takes, lo- it takes longer than that. And you would be talking about hand counting 20, 30 races on a, on a, mm-hmm. on a California ballot. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't think we have enough human bandwidth to to do that count, kind of count on election night, which is why I, I and Verified Voting, the organization that I am chairman of the board of, mm-hmm. uh, have, have always recommended, uh, look, do machine preliminary counts on, on, on election night and then uh, require by law a routine uh, audit of the paper ballots, so-called risk-limiting audit, which is a statistical process that hand counts, hand eye counts, uh, a a random sample of the ballots in the in the day or two following the election to verify that the machine counts were correct or if they're not correct to fix them and the, uh, uh, meaning to uh, 
and you mean correct you mean correct them you mean correct them david i mean not correct fix them, them. Yes. <laughs> i mean yes substitute the correct results right for incorrect machine preliminary counts if they are found to be incorrect well let me and, ask let me ask you yeah. this we've got just a, a minute or two here left uh dr david jefferson i want to uh we will we can quibble about the feasibility uh down the line of uh of, of hand counted paper ballots and so forth um but would you agree as a uh, c- computer scientist, I would say legendary computer scientist, David, uh, at uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Would you agree, setting aside the, the, the time element, I don't think it takes as long if it's done at the precinct each night, but setting all of that aside, just to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff here, would you agree that the ultimate, the what I call the gold standard of democracy, would be to hand count each and every paper ballot if we had that uh, that time, that opportunity, and so forth? As far as accuracy of our democracy goes, can we find uh, some common ground on that point at least? Well, I think it, it, theoretically, if you had um, yes, I mean theoretically, hand counted paper ballots where by hand counted we mean multiple uh multiple eyes on every ballot mm-hmm. including eyes from different parties and so on agreeing right. on the interpretation of each ballot yes that would be in an ideal world you know the i would say the gold standard i just don't think we're ever going to live in that kind of ideal world but but I'll, I'll accept your point. Well, I'm an idealist. You know that, David. <laughs> uh, lastly here, uh, knowing what you know uh, over the years, having been so closely involved with so many of the earliest examinations of, of these systems, as an advisor to several different uh, California secretaries of state, how, how many did you, Five or six, right? In, five. In five. Uh, yeah. Both Democratic and Republicans out here in California. Uh, when 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 those examinations were quite literally state secrets, you you were involved in those uh, those analyses. Is there any reason to believe the argument we hear now is that oh these machines uh, not only are they vulnerable, they're old. They're running running you know Windows 2000, Windows XP, uh, you know these old right. systems. We need new computer systems. Is there any reason to believe that if we did suddenly buy a whole bunch of new computer systems to do these same things, uh, that somehow they would be less vulnerable to manipulation, either by outside hackers or insiders who have even easier access to gaming these systems? Well, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that, I mean, meaning I don't think that they would be necessarily less vulnerable. Mm-hmm. First place, the threat environment is constantly changing, and we are constantly learning of new threats to systems that we thought were were secure against those threats before, and I don't expect that fact of life to change. So we we have to change the way we think about securing voting system, uh, securing elections. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to harden the voting systems themselves against uh, all forms of attack, uh, that, that I think is going to be a hopeless task for as far into the future as computer scientists can see. Instead of hardening those systems themselves, we need to, we need to design systems so that after the election is over, we can verify yeah that the results were correct and this is and then if they're not uh we 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 have to you know we have to be able to to change the the results accordingly mm-hmm. and um so the emphasis is on detection and correction right. not prevention although everybody's instinct is to put all of their effort into 
into prevention, I think that's that's hopeless. I mean, sure, yeah. do as much of it as you can, but it'll never be sufficient. You also have to, after the fact, detect and correct. I've all, I've been trying to point out this uh, that issue, very issue for years, that the problem ultimately is not actually whether the systems are hacked or right or wrong or not, but the public's ability to know that the results were reported uh, accurately. I mean, even if an election is 100% secure, if the public doesn't know that, uh, if they persist in having concerns about the results, that alone is, I would think, a a great threat to democracy. David Jefferson, uh, the voting village, I think, was such a hit at DEFCON 25. Uh, you were uh, working or talking at least with some of the planners there. Uh, will they be doing this again at DEFCON uh, 26, to your knowledge? Uh, yes, they will. In fact, um, it's been declared by Jeff Moss, the founder of, of DEFCON, that this is going to be a permanent feature of DEFCON for the foreseeable future. And um, as, I, as I said, this particular um, voting machine hacking village was, was put together in less than six weeks. But normally this is done over the course of a year, and so they have literally already started in planning for next year's Hacking Village, and there we expect to have much more um, recent and much more complete voting systems. So we ought to be able to conduct a mock election next year at DEF CON from beginning to end and show how the hackers are able to actually affect the um, the vote totals. At least that's my hope and expectation for next year's DEFCON. Nice. It won't be just guys like you and uh, and me, David, driving election officials crazy. Our boat just got <laughs> a lot larger. It sounds like Dr. David Jefferson uh, for for year now a a, a a I think visiting computer scientist is the uh, label they've given you at Lawrence Livermore National right. Laboratories after many years there. Uh, also, chairman of the board at VerifiedVoting.org. Am I right about that? Yes, you are. Very good. Uh, You can find their work uh, over at verifiedvoting.org. We didn't even have time to get into uh, David's brilliant advocacy against Internet voting and why that's so important, but we'll try to do that next time. Uh, David Jefferson, always great talking to to my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Brad. It's been a pleasure. Okay, we're running late, so I got to get out. I just want to make sure, once again, that what happened in Vegas this weekend does not stay in Vegas. Very important. Spread the word. You can help us spread the word by finding, following, and uh, sharing us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. You can drop me email if you prefer. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and of course, Dr. David Jefferson of the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory and VerifiedVoting.org. My thanks also to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we have tried to do over your public airwaves and at the website now for so many years. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you in advance. That's it. Until we meet again. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 